the field of human conflict, but so much owed by so many to so few. Hello, welcome <laughs> at Radio UF at Student Radio 98,9. Today we're talking about the anti-vaxxer movement, from vaccine hesitancy to misinformation and conspiracy theories. The anti-vaccination movement includes a wide range of opinions. You have groups of people who question COVID-19-related government restrictions and vaccination campaigns. This may be related to a range of reasons. One might be questioning the science of vaccines, dis disbelieving the severity of COVID itself, or for example, questioning whether it is democratic to exclude unvaccinated people from certain places. While there should be space in society for differing opinions, we see that a lot of misinformation has entered the discourse about COVID-19. This led the Director General of the World Health Organization to say that the world is not just fighting an epidemic, we're fighting an infodemic. This also means that its fair share of conspiracy theories have developed about COVID-19. From the Great Reset, to COVID-19 being a bioweapon, it being a hoax, or to the vaccine solely made for the profit of pharmaceutical companies. Today, here at Radio UF, we'll be discussing the anti-vaccination movement from a European perspective. Is the Swedish movement the same as the Dutch or the French? Because even though many countries are lifting their restrictions and Sweden is celebrating the end of the pandemic, the anti-vaccine movement has led to a split in many European societies that might be hard to overcome. I'm out. Uh, I'll be broadcasting for the first time today. Uh, I'm originally from the Netherlands, but I'm studying here at Peace and Conflict Studies and I'm here with... Melina. Hi everyone. I'm French and I'm studying Humanitarian Action. And I'm here with... Isaac, who's <laughs> back again, and I'm studying political science here at Uppsala University. We'll take you through this evening. Yes, and we'll back, be back after a small break. Okay, that was Tell Me What You Want by Alden. So I just outlined some of the narratives, but let's dig a little bit deeper. What are some of the arguments they're using? Yes, so one of the arguments that is really prominent um, amongst anti-vaxxers is what is called mass psychosis formation. So according to anti-vaxxer Dr. Robert Malone, um, our society is currently sick, not of COVID, but of mass psychosis formation. And so according to this person, the condition occurs when a society becomes decoupled from each other and has a free-floating anxiety in a sense that things don't make sense. And so he's basically saying that people are so anxious about COVID that they're ready to follow whatever leaders are saying and that um, mainstream people are being paralyzed those days and can, yeah, are willing and able to accept anything that leaders will say because they are so scared. I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> That's because you're one of them. You're <laughs> one of the sheeple. <laughs> the sheeple. Yeah. <laughs> but it's pretty funny because in an effort to make sense, so it's kind of a way to make sense of the world, to understand why we're all so willing to believe this information. But on the other hand, you also have to then accept that all or most of the governments across the world 
are then cooperating in spreading the same misinformation, brainwashing all its people. And not only that, there are tons of people working in, bar in government. And even if you might yourself think all these mm, grey bureaucrats are just robots, mm -hmm. it's unlikely that they'd be able to keep a secret on such a scale, which might be might sound comforting in one way or another, but it's kind of the core of the problem. That's so true, Isaac, especially when countries are never, never, ever, ever able to agree on anything at the UN or whatever. So why would they all agree all of a sudden? So if we're all sheeple and they agree, maybe we're in a better world. <laughs> Perhaps, but we'll be right back. That was Everyone's a Psycho by Kilimanjaro and Lilia. And while we might not want to believe in mass psychosis here at Radio UF, I for one am worried about the vaccine changing my DNA. Do you really worry about that, Isaac? But alright, fair enough, don't be scared, because I'm gonna try to explain you how... Messenger ribonucleic acid vaccines are working because yes, that's one of the main arguments of anti-vaxxers that those type of vaccines are modifying the DNA and everything and they're like, yes, mm. going to infiltrate our bodies and so on and, and turn us into monsters basically. But actually, um, here is how those types of vaccines are working. mRNA vaccines are using the nucleic acid I just described, created in a labo laboratory to teach our cells how to make a protein or even just a piece of a protein that triggers an immune response inside our bodies. And it is, it is that immune response which produces antibodies that protects us from getting infected if the real virus enters our bodies. So it is true that those types of vaccines have to deal with DNA and everything, but mRNA never enters the nucleus of the cell where our DNA is located, so it cannot change or influence our genes. And I guess to remember as well, if you don't remember high school biology, <laughs> the DNA are in every of our in all of our cells, so it would have to go through every all the billions of cells in our body. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah. <laughs> Another point has been, especially in Sweden, since the swine flu epidemic that was forecasted during 2019, where we started vaccinating in late 2019, I think, to 2010, because there was developing symptoms by the end of 2010 that a lot more people than usual tend or fell ill with narcolepsy. And a couple of years later, there were some studies done, or first 2011, there were some studies done on uh, this particularly in uh, Sweden, because we read, raised some flags and then Finland and whatnot. While this is true, it's interesting because this ties into the talking point of how we don't know the long-term effects of the vaccine. And while narcolepsia, or... This is the key point then with narcolepsy because it's hard to detect when you get narcolepsy. You get drowsy and have less energy than normal, but it can take, or it says that uh, it's about 67 weeks to two years is the average time it takes to 
realize the symptoms are actually narcolepsia. So for that reason, it seems like people fell ill of narcolepsia a lot longer afterwards while they were already developing it in close proximity to vaccination, mm. which is the key point. It's also why we're expected to wait 15 minutes when we've just done the vaccination, because that's between 15 and 30 minutes is the time frame we're most likely to get a anaphylactic reaction, which might be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And that argument that you just said reminds me of um, another main narrative of the anti-vaxxers, which is that, oh, the vaccine was developed very, very, I mean, ex- extremely rapidly compared to others, where it takes like 15 years and so on. Mm. And that we don't have enough insight to understand the potential side effects of the COVID vaccines. However, um, to counter that argument, we can say that research on mRNA vaccines have been going on for more than 25 years. And that in this case, the COVID vaccines development has been much faster than other vaccines because the scientists have assumed that it was the spike protein that uh, COVID vaccines should target. And this protein had already been studied extensively in the case of other viruses, such as uh, SARS-CoV-1, for instance, which was responsible for the SARS epidemic 20 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. And of course, we also don't know the long-term effects of COVID yet. So that's exactly. also something to take into consideration. Okay, so we've discussed some of the arguments, not all of them. We've debunked them, hopefully for you. Uh, and we'll discuss some of the uh, national comparisons, national perspectives after the song. You just heard I Got It by OG. Welcome back at Radio UF, at Student Radio Nitti of Takovania. I still have difficulty with the Swedish, but I'm trying my best. Um, so we're discussing, uh, now we're going to discuss the perspectives from a more national perspective. Uh, and Melina is going to start us off. Yeah, hi. So I'm going to share a few insights from the French movement. First of all, I think what is important is to distinguish between the anti-vaxxers, the anti-sanitary paths and conspiracy theorists, because not all anti-sanitary paths are necessarily anti-vaxxers or conspiracy theorists, because um, in France it was mandatory to show a proof of vaccination, three doses or two doses, and a negative PCR test to, to access bars, restaurants, leisure activities, public transportation, and certain public events or spaces. And some people were really opposed to that, but their argument was that it was an infringement on individual freedoms, and they were not necessarily scared of the vaccine. Yes, but one thing that really struck my um, that really struck me when researching the French movement was that it was backed by a lot of public figures, including doctors uh, who have worked with the WHO and the French National Drugs Agency. And then I came to realize that, yes, um, anti-vaxxer movements often have very renowned professor, like even infectious diseases specialists that give them credibility. And... uh, Yes, especially on the surface level. Absolutely, because most of the studies um, are are flawed and there's a lot of um, methodological bias and so on. Mm. Yes, but another point that I found really interesting was that in France, it seems that the anti-vaxxer movement 
is actually a movement of resistance against the Parisian central power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that so does sound familiar because I think in general a lot of anti-faxes kind of distrust the system, you know, the media in general. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, in some parts of Europe, you know, radical right parties are tying in with that. And that's partly also the case in the Netherlands because we have uh, this radical right political party called uh, Forum for Democratie, which means the Forum for Democracy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, sounds somewhat ironic. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, they have kind of led an anti-fax uh, discourse in Parliament as well. Um, the, the party's leader, Thierry, Thierry Baudet, has also uh, like talked about the re Great Reset conspiracy theory. So uh, that's based on Klaus Schwab, uh, who wrote this book about uh, the Great Reset, how we can see uh, COVID maybe also as an opportunity for change. Uh, and uh, great research said conspiracy plot follows that instead that it's like a nefarious plot by like the world elite that tries to like kind of install a different world order um, so he's also like written a, a book about that I haven't read it so I can't go into like too much detail but it kind of shows you know how the radical right has taken over that discourse a little bit and it's been worrying because they've made Holocaust comparisons, They've, you know, there's been talk about medical apartheid in Parliament, uh, like politicians of this party have said to other politicians from other parties that uh, tribunals will be waiting for them, like a reference to like the Nuremberg trials, uh, tribunals after the Second World War. So that's, you know, like a lot of like radicalizing discourse happening at, you know, the highest political level in the Netherlands. Um, but like in general, the uh, National Coordinator for Counterterrorism has uh, reported that there's a radical undercurrent uh, happening in the Netherlands right now, that activists, like anti-faxer activists, are guilty of harassing politicians, journalists, intimidating police officers. Uh, so now it has also happened that uh, like one of these so-called activists went to the House of Politicians with like a torch, a burning torch. So um, that's quite worrying. Of course, this is not a whole movement, like you also said. There's like a lot of degrees, you know, and I mm -hmm. think we should also still allow, you know, nuances to, uh, you know, people should be able to be critical about when someone's freedom of movement is limited. Uh, that's also a democratic right. So in that sense, I feel like the discussion is lacking a lot of nuance, but uh, these are worrying trends. And I'm very curious to hear after a little break uh, what uh, uh, Isaac has to say about yeah. the Swedish situation. And it's also important to remember, while these uh, groups have one great unifying object, they're quite heterogeneous in that from why this happens is where yeah. they differ. Yeah, exactly. That was different by Casper the Ghost. And now we're going to listen to Isaac talk about the Swedish uh, anti-fax perspective. <laughs> And contrary to France and the Netherlands, I, in my perception, there hasn't been quite a stir in Sweden to the same degree. We recently, the 22nd of January, had a demonstration against the Corona Pass, of course, which also now rings quite null because we don't have any restrictions at all. Mm -hmm. But especially in the beginning of the pandemic, the most common talking point I heard was how some nurses were unwilling to vaccinate. And this boggled the minds of a lot of people as these are medical experts to some degree at least, and they deal with this kind of or sickness a lot. 
But then they quickly realized, oh, if so they asked the nurses, if you had to vaccinate, take a vacation to Spain, would you be willing to uh, take the vaccine then? And we heard a, a hooray or, or a strong yes in favor of, of course, I want to visit Spain. And if I have to take a vaccine, that's no problem. I especially need the sun. The, <laughs> yeah, especially in Sweden's winter. Like. Yeah. Uh, and I also think one part that ties this together, even though the Swedish Democrats are a third largest party, which is quite far right, have a lot of voters that tend to be very skeptical of the vaccines, the party itself is not outspokenly anti-vax, which might very well be because of the current political climate in Sweden where they're trying to become a cooperative partner for a coalition party after the election this year, which would might which if they were to actively support an anti-vax movement would probably result in them committing political suicide as they would be a toxic partner in that sense. Yeah, I think the difference with like the Dutch case is that the, the party I just talked about, Forum for Democracy, mm-hmm. they had like before like the Dutch elections in last March, they had already some kind of like implosion mm-hmm. where there came some anti-Semitic discourse above and then some other like, uh, you know, party members, like prominent party members are leave, leaving the party and founding their own par- like mm-hmm. movement. So it made like a lot of sense also maybe from a strategic, you know, position mm-hmm. that this part, the political party leader decided, you know, to go into this anti vaxxer discourse. Of course, we can't really know, you know, but it's mm-hmm. like, it's not like they uh, didn't do it because it would be political suicide. That already happened quite a bit before. <laughs> Yeah, and what you what you're saying about like it's all about phrasing and everything reminds me of uh, political communication mm-hmm. because I think in France a factor that really created distrust towards vaccine was the government's communication blunders at the very beginning of the pandemic because there were like contradictory messages regarding the efficiency of face masks um some some national health officials said that we didn't need masks like that they would not stop the spread of covid uh, covid-19 and so on but actually why they were asked to spread that message was that because france hadn't bought enough masks so in order to kind of hide this like shortage and uh yes and not get the um anger from the population they said no 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 like you don't need masks and so on so then when masks uh, became mandatory a lot of people were like hey but what did you say like would you you're contradicting yourselves like you are um incapable and i think it created a lot of yeah a lot of suspicion no Mm. no that makes a lot of sense and i know we've had similar uh, discussions in Sweden because our health ministry was also very vehemently against mask mandates at the beginning of the vaccination, which might also very well been because of a lack of uh, access to masks in Sweden. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also, of course, a lack of actual information because mm. this pandemic is an unprecedented event, at least, you know, if if we don't think like about back about the Spanish flu. So it also makes sense that we were learning and making mistakes. But yeah. And while uh, from the outside, it might in some cases be obviously contradictory. It might also be that we're updating our recommendations as we go because 
during a pandemic of this unprecedented level in modern days, you have to act on limited information. So you can't make a perfect judgment because you don't have the information. And then when you get more information, you have to then change the recommendations, which might seem like the government is flip-flopping while they're just updating what is current. That's Science. very true, yeah. but we'll discuss misinformation rather mm. than information right after the break. That was Jill Balloon. Right now we're gonna discuss the vicious cycle of misinformation, disinformation, uh, and so-called censorship. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, it seems to me that a lot of people enter the anti-vaxxer sphere through other heterodox views, let's say. So, I don't know, I haven't met or heard a lot of people who were anti-vaxxer because they've always believed, you know, all their lives that vaccines were um, were dangerous or were bad. It's often like another theory, let's say, that leads to becoming anti-vaxxer. Mm. And I recently ha had a two hours conversation with a fierce an anti-vax in a carpooling journey. And so I asked the man to share how he became anti-vaxxer and how he became active in the movement because he was like a hacker for the French um, anti-vax movement trying to, yeah, hack information from the French government and share that on a lot of Facebook groups and so on. And what was very interesting for me was that it all started with a heartbreak. The man was devastated with sadness and tried to comprehend what had gone wrong in his relationship. And he then came in contact with a psychologist that basically told him that he had an outstanding emotional intelligence, whereas his ex-woman was a narcissistic pervert and so on. And then he started like, yeah, looking more into what these like outstanding capabilities were and so on. And then he realized that this world was a world of lies and so on and i think that's how he yeah got into the anti-vax sphere obviously i'm summing up everything but what really struck me was that this element of let's say anti-vax radicalization was sharing a lot of characteristics with jihadist radicalization because i studied that a little bit and yeah in, in both cases, there were two key elements. A disruption in the person's life accompanied with a weakening of usual frames of reference and the idea that uh, the person is the chosen one, that they are the truth holder in a decaying world governed by capitalistic interests and large conglomerates. And I think also, you know, the fact that uh, social media's moderation um, yeah, is removing or flagging um, anti-vax anti -vax posts as sensitive content only fuels the, the anger and the outrage of anti-vaxxers because, yeah, it really buys into, um, how can I say, yeah, fuels the idea that the truth is being hidden mm. and uh, this leads to victimhood and further radicalization. I think that's I think that's really interesting. Um, I but I think what you also say, like if they get censored, that maybe they also go, you know, to, to spaces that might be even more radical, you know, where mm -hmm. they only, you know, have access to a certain amount of news. Uh, 
but like myself i also have an acquaintance on facebook who i like at the beginning of the pandemic saw like you know skeptical about like the long-term effects of uh, of the vaccine of the vaccines and then like slowly i saw like this woman like sharing more and more like kind of radical things you know like that it ended up like her questioning um 9-11 like you know like the theories Uh about that Uh um and I, I can imagine, you know, that she might might have entered this, you know, other sphere of information, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where, where she started getting access to like alternative news and doesn't, you know, and really believe the mainstream media anymore. And what's interesting with specifically uh, misinformation and these conspiracy theories is uh, a kind of idea that it might select for a certain group of people who are more willing to believe because mm-hmm. core, the core of the conspiracy is generally might seem very convoluted to us and even more strange than the real world. But it also tries to pin everything through the same lens where it all makes sense in contrast to our very much complex world. So it feels better that to say that, oh, it's some grand conspiracy that's particularly screwing you over rather than <laughs> some accident of government as is formed right now that's very true and i think it would be super interesting to see like how we can engage with the movement but perhaps we can discuss that after a song break definitely yes welcome back to radio uf at student radio niti otakomania um that was shinigami eyes by grimes um so we were just talking about the misinformation um but how like of course how should we like engage with the movement but also deal with this kind of misinformation on these social media platforms should should the you know the platforms itself be responsible for that that's of course like a broader uh, res- like discussion right now already like should for example facebook and instagram should they be responsible for like filtering these kind of thoughts do we want these groups to be responsible for that is it democratic that they censor in that kind of way mm. at the same time of course you know we've all seen you know what happened with like the elections how they've been influenced you know we don't want that mm. to happen either um and if they censor too much then they might go you know on platforms where uh you know that's like telegram that's closed off for example or mm. more closed off um WhatsApp, for example, has already tried to like, but that's more in relation to electoral misinformation, try to limit the spread by uh, like not being like, that's not allowed to share it more often. Like if I think in India was the case, that a lot of misinformation was like being spread, uh, you know, through WhatsApp and at a certain point they were not allowed to share it with that many people anymore. Uh, I, how do you guys feel about that? Mm, it's difficult to say, yeah. I'll pass the mic on to Isaac. <laughs> yeah, because uh, the, at the very core of the problem, you don't want these... Uh, so there's a quote somewhere, or I heard sometime that said, I don't want my Nazis in, down in the basement conspirati- con- con- or coming up with conspiracies to overthrow the government. I want them out in broad daylight so I can debunk them. But the struggle, <laughs> especially with these kinds of conspiracies, is you need to have generally very specialized knowledge to even be able to discuss a very avid conspiracy theorist or anti-vaxxers because they might might very well have read up on certain studies that you wouldn't know necessarily on the top of your hand and then it becomes difficult 
because you don't want them to spread this information and get others on board, but you also don't want to uh, let them fester in the dark. That's very true. And I know that the medical community sometimes is, is giving up actually on engaging with anti-vaxxers because um, my mother is an infectious diseases specialist back in France at uh, Grenoble Alpes University Hospital. And yes, yeah, so she deals with um, a lot of anti-vaxxer patients. And I, I, I asked her, but, but what do you do? You know, how do you con convince them? And she said, I don't discuss with them anymore. And I was so surprised. I was like, but mom, like, really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why? And yeah, she said that the indecided, she does try to convince them to get jabbed. But with the others, it's pointless. She said, I've tried everything, firmness, gentleness, trying to scare them. And I don't have the energy to debate anymore. Such arguments are only but leaving me fuming. Mm. And um, yeah, but I know that the national health agencies in different countries have really tried to put the accent on, you know, online information, like um, creating um, empowered, informed citizens. So that has been one approach. Otherwise, in other countries, the approach has been uh, more like what you were saying, like restricting the free flow of, um, of information, for instance, in Hungary. But as that has been very much criticized um, in the light of, yes, individual freedoms and so on. And then once again, it, it fuels the narrative of like censorship and so on. So, yeah, that's a really big debate. And yeah, but it's also difficult to like reach out to these people because um, I feel like first and foremost to try to convince someone that a firm believer in this sort of thing you kind of have to be on their good side and you don't just that that doesn't happen at the hospital even mm -hmm. when they search for help so you kind of almost have to go out find them give them a hug essentially. <laughs> but it's difficult because nowadays with the internet you can isolate to different parts and you don't necessarily need to engage to the same degree whereas back in the day if you were the buffoon of the village you might risk being outcast so you couldn't do too radical you couldn't be too radical because you still had to live i i think like what you say about giving them a hug is also like you know these these people are coming from like a position of fear often anxiety anger you know and like in the Netherlands, for example like the people anti-vaxxers are kind of ridiculized with the use of the word wappy like that's kind of like crazy we call them like virus wappies virus crazies mm. and you know that doesn't help at all you know like you delegitimize like them you know their ideas and of course you don't want to legitimize certain ideas but you should still you know trying to engage them rather than alienate them yeah yeah that's very true and i feel like what could be very useful would be um, very long-term strategies such as, um, you know, including more like media and health literacy in like school curricula. Mm. That was the idea of one of the public health specialists in Norway. And I think, yeah, that's what like the most efficient, let's say, weapon against all these conspiracy theories. But obviously it's, yeah, w we won't see the effects of such strategies before a few months or years so yeah no exactly and in the meantime we still have others willing to spread that message to mm -hmm. new people always definitely yeah 
Okay, we'll be back after the break. That was Gorbachev by Prosta Kilian. Melina, you recently came from Thailand. Like, do you have some perspectives from, from, from that, from your experience there? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, it was quite a shock to arrive in Thailand after Sweden, where like, yeah, COVID was almost non-existent in Sweden. And then you had to quarantine for two weeks in a hotel room. And then when you arrived at the airport, like staff were in full PPE and you had to, to pass at least like six uh, medical checks before leaving the airport and so on and you know a lot of my friends were saying like but you guys have the vaccines like you guys don't have uh, Sinovac like you have Johnson and Johnson you have Pfizer and you don't want to take it and yeah it's really interesting because vaccine hesitancy or resistance is affecting mostly the global north and this phenomenon this this phenomenon has even a uh, has even got a name it's called the vaccine paradox and it refers to the fact that it is people who are aware of the burden of vaccine preventable diseases who are usually more aware of the public health effects of vaccination than people in um, high and middle income countries where those diseases no longer circulate or circulate very little yeah yeah because it's been uh, discussed how polio was wiped out around the turn of the century mm -hmm. but is slowly returning due to unwillingness by new parents to vaccinate their kids usually citing risks of autism mm -hmm. and what's interesting to consider is specifically vaccines for children is usually a hotly debated topic as if anything goes wrong that person has to live with that for the rest of their life mm -hmm. so for that reason corona has been kind of nice as it targets the elderly as usual which is contra con in contrast to how the swine flu when that was first discovered because a lot of the cases uh, it was showing severe symptoms in younger people specifically below 50 which raises a great deal of alarm mm -hmm. and how this gets handled uh, is very interesting to see especially considering how much information we have access to here but that's true. that mm -hmm. doesn't mean you get all the right information or that's true. but i think you guys got so. the right information thanks to us <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly yeah and we'll uh, we'll be back next week uh, about like topics about the coup d'etat and political instability in western africa right now thank you for listening to radio uf at student radio on and hopefully you'll be listening to us next week as well yeah and remember to highlight the problem is the first step in trying to solve it. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye guys.